Hey, Jared Dubin here. This is the audio from Thursday's chat on the Halftime app with Sean Hyken from Bleacher Report. Sean lives in, grew up in Portland and covers the Blazers from out there. He was also a beat writer for covering the Bulls back in the day. So we talked a lot about the Blazers and the Bulls to start off. We talked a little bit about rookies and season surprises at the end as well. Chat runs about an hour as usual and we'll be back next week once again Tuesday and Thursday from 5 to 6 p.m. and we'll release the audio again the following day as well both times. Uh, Enjoy. Quick note before we get started here, at certain points, Sean's audio volume gets a little bit low, so if you can't hear, just, you know, turn it up a little bit. Apologies for that, and we'll get a fix for next time. So, thanks for doing this, man. Appreciate you. Yeah. I uh, I want to start with the Blazers. You are in Portland, from Portland, cover the Blazers pretty closely. Uh, I've talked about this before. I My game-watching schedule, I basically watch two games a night, every night. And just by quirk of the schedule, I've only seen the Blazers uh, once so far. I watched them get blown out by the Clippers. Um, but, you know, they didn't make any sort of dramatic changes in the offseason, you know? Like, basically, the only rotation changes they've made is Carmelo, Derek Jones, and Ennis Cantor out, and Nasir Little's in the rotation now, and they brought in Larry Nance and Cody Zeller. Neil Olshay was pretty adamant that the roster is not the problem. They just need to be played differently, coached differently, whatever it is. So in your mind, what are the differences between this version of the Blazers and the previous version of the Blazers that we've seen for the last, however many, how many years was Stotts there? Eight or nine years? Um, nine. Nine years, yeah. It's a long time. Well, in the NBA. well, I think it was really like the, the time when it kind of shifted was really more so, you know, the last five. Because in 2015 was when, LaMarcus Aldridge and Nicholas Batum and Wesley Matthews and Robin Lopez all left. And then they kind of retooled the whole thing to be built around Dame and CJ. So that was kind of when the shift came. And then since then, it's just kind of been shuffling in different role players. Like it was Al Farouk Aminu and Mo Harkless for a while. And then there was the Hassan Whiteside year. And then, you know, then there was last, there was last year. Uh, honestly, I do think, you know, if you look at the, uh, you know, the roster changes they made on paper this offseason, like you said, they aren't dramatic ones, but... Cody Zeller, definitely an upgrade over Ennis Cantor. Uh, Derek Jones Jr. was definitely, you know, he wasn't playing that much. And Larry Nance Jr., I think, is making, you know, a, a bigger impact. But fundamentally, it's just kind of the same team that it's been that whole time, where it's Dame and CJ, and then it's Nurkic, and you don't know what you're going to get him, get from him consistently on a night-to-night basis, which is a problem. And then it's a bunch of role players that on paper seem like they fit in, but it's just they, they just kind of have a ceiling. Now, obviously, the elephant in the room here with this Blazers uh, season, the first you know seven or eight games or whatever it's been of, of this year so far, is that Dane is going through the worst shooting stretch of his entire career. And that's just, it, it's kind of, there's a couple of parts to it. One is, you know, obviously any team when, their best player, you're kind of seeing this with the Celtics with Jason Tatum too, but like yep. 
But like when the best player and the guy who's you know relied on that much over that many years is playing like this, the team isn't is probably going to lose a lot of games. But it's also just kind of exposing that there's been so much stuff, and I wrote about this the other night after the Philly game where they lost when the Sixers didn't have Embiid or Tobias Harris, and they still lost. Uh, Basically, the whole last nine years it's been, that you know the Blazers organization has basically been propped up by Dame being as incredible as he is, and you know it doesn't matter what injuries they have to other guys or you know how flawed some of the rosters are or whatever the case may be. Dame is just so good that they'll find a way to you know win enough games to get in the playoffs and maybe win a series or maybe even win two series like the year they went to the conference finals because Dame is just that good. And when Dame isn't playing at that level it just kind of exposes how this team just isn't very good. Yeah, it's it's tough when you build a team like so clearly around the skill set of one guy. And granted, it is uh-huh. somewhat two guys. Dame, uh, CJ is a similar, if obviously not quite as good player. And when you're built around, you know, the off-the-dribble shooting exploits of basically like two guys, and one of those two guys is not shooting well, and you're defense can't carry you then what what do you have in that situation and i guess that was sort of the point of making the coaching change was to give them something else neil had talked a bunch about like how they needed to be better on defense and i mean i don't know that they have the personnel to be a lot better on defense and it's some of that is is damon cj as two small guards it's gonna be difficult. Whoa, 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 whoa! That's oh, I know. Better not let me. Better not let Neil hear me say that. Um, it's a false narrative, and Dame, yeah. Dame is tired of you guys uh, of of the media pushing that narrative. That was that was what. Uh, yeah, uh, if Dame doesn't want people to push that narrative, um, he could That's give you know, Just... a bit more effort on defense than he did last year. I actually think Dame has been pretty good on defense this year for him. Like, I'm not saying, like, Dame has been elite or anything like that, but I think I think the effort has been there with Dame this year, and I think that, I think he's, you know, ma- making an effort to kind of make an impact on that, and I think, I don't think it's, I don't think it's an effort thing. I think, I think that's something, and especially with Dame not shooting very well this year, I think, I think that's something I, I at least, you know, in the games that I've watched, I've noticed him trying to do that more. And by the way, just for the record, the Blazers are currently... 21st in defensive rating, which is not great. It's better than last year. Not you know, 29th like, like it was. That's a pretty significant jump from 20 from 29th. So, and so you know, I I think there is, and obviously, again, from a personnel standpoint, I think uh, Cody Zeller is a huge upgrade over Ennis Cantor, and I think this year, little playing more in the rotation is going to be an upgrade over what Carmelo Anthony was giving you on that end. So, I do think there's reason to look at their defense this year and say, while it's still not great, it's better than the last couple of years where it was one of the worst defenses in the league. And I think that from an effort standpoint, Dame has kind of been bought in on that. It's just, there's a lot of, you know, there's only so good you're going to be able to be because when he isn't shooting as, as well as he normally does. And I mean, because the whole idea with the Blazers was last year, they had one of the best defenses in the league and one of the worst defenses in the league. And now, you know, if, and the, the thought was, if you can keep them having one of the best offenses in the league and get their defense from terrible to close to league average, then they're going to be pretty good. The defense, at least in the early going, has gotten, like we said, up from 29th to 21st, which is kind of roughly in the middle of the pack. So they've done that part. But it's the offense that's kind of been an issue 
And a lot of that is because Dame is just not making a lot of these shots. And I don't know why it is that he isn't making these shots. I don't know if it's a mental thing. I don't know if it's a physical thing. He's obviously, you know, dealt with the abdominal thing last year and he dealt with it during the Olympics. And he keeps insisting, people ask him about it early on in the season, and he keeps insisting that that's not an issue and that's not something he's going to use as an excuse. But when somebody who's been, you know, one of the best shooters in the league and one of the most dangerous guys in the league for however many years, eight or nine years, and now it's suddenly the worst shooters in the league who's taking that volume of, of shots. You have to wonder if there's something physical going on there. Yeah, I mean, I'm less worried, I think, about Dame not being able to shoot for some reason right now. Like, yeah, I, I, I understand that's... Yeah, like, it's obviously a big story. Like, the guy's one of the best players in the league, one of the best shooters in the league, and his ability to make basically any shot off the dribble is sort of like the basis of their offense or has been at least for the most for most of the last like you said five years yeah you gotta figure he's gonna make some shots at some point so for me i like i like want to be focused on all of the other stuff what's their new defensive system like are they staggering damon cj's minutes the same way or or are they doing things differently is nurkic being used differently how are the guys that are stepping into the rotation or playing bigger roles like nasir little and anthony simons doing like what do you think is the difference between the the like the defensive schemes that they were running last year and what they're doing this year and what have you thought of like have there been any changes with nurkic and and things like that well, the Nurkic thing, I think, is a big... The, the, the two guys that I think look at, you know, outside of Dame, obviously, which is nothing we've sort of discussed, but the two guys that I think you look at as saying, like, these two guys need to be better are Nurkic and Robert Covington. Those are both those are both guys that, you know, at their best, those guys are big, you know, high-impact defensive guys. Nurkic, I just... I, I mean, I think a lot of it... I think Nurkic has been fine defensively for the most part. It's been offensively, just not really... You know, in the, like in the game against the Sixers, where the Sixers didn't have Joel Embiid and Nurkic still wasn't really asserting himself. The, the, and, you know, there's been so many times that, like, he'll take the ball and he'll kind of shoot a soft floater around the basket instead of just going up and dunking it and overpowering people. And I just, you know, I, I, every year it's always been just, you know, oh, Nurkic just needs to do this on a more consistent basis. And it just doesn't... Uh... And you, you just don't... Uh, you know, you aren't seeing him do that. And, you know, he's got a contract coming up. So I'm just... It's going to be interesting to see, you know, how all that plays out. Yeah, I mean... I, I thought this offseason there might have been some decision with Nurkic. Because wasn't it... They could have made him... Wasn't it a team option, if I'm remembering correctly? It on was, his contract? His deal for this for this current season was partially guaranteed. Obviously, they kept him. That's but his deal... But his deal... At the you know for the from the start it's been like he's making like twelve million a year and you know I think he is hoping that his deal coming up is going to be for significantly more than that and he's represented by Rick Paul and Clutch which, you know that means get paid if I were the Blazers and you look at you know the inconsistent play and the injury history I'm not sure I'm going to want to if I were the one making the decision I'm not sure I'm the one you know who'd want to pay him twenty or twenty five or whatever it is a year that he's going to be looking for. So it's going to be interesting to see how that kind of gets resolved. Do they trade him and what's his trade value? Because whatever team trades for him, they know that they're going to have to pay him whatever, you know, he's going to want to get paid, which I think is going to be more than some teams are going to be comfortable paying him. So that's, it's just kind of an interesting wrinkle to just kind of keep an eye on. Yeah. I mean, look, obviously most of that is going to depend, I think, on how they play this year, because 
if they play well, they're going to want to keep things going. And if they don't, they're probably looking at making, you know, even more significant changes than just not bringing Nurkic back. And then well, what do you mean by more significant changes? Well, that even, even aside from anything happening with Dame, and we could talk about that a well, little bit too, not, but I don't think like, my thing with the Blazers over the last several years has basically been they've been making changes to their roster around the margins, and they're not a team that's changes around the margins away from being a real contender. Like, you know, they swapped out uh, Aminu and Harkless for, um, well, they got, last year it was Covington, but before that they swapped them out and they brought in like Carmelo and Ariza and Rodney Hood and like Kent Bazemore and gave Gary Trent more minutes, and then last year they bring in Covington, and now this year they bring in Larry Nance, and it's like, those guys are good players, and they make sense in the context of this roster and what you need to surround Dame and CJ and Nurkic. You need guys that are long, that can play multiple positions, that will try on defense and don't necessarily need the ball on offense, Um, but it's just like, that doesn't seem like enough. You know what I mean? Like To me, at least, they've needed bigger changes to like the structure of the way their team works and the way they're trying to attack on both ends of the floor. And I guess for, for Olshay, that meant changing the coach. It, it does seem like, I don't know, it's, that that's not a, like from my standpoint, that doesn't seem like enough. What do you think? I don't agree with a single thing that you said. And I don't believe that those types of changes are going to be on the horizon. Yeah. <laughs> the way that I'm gonna is the way that I would put it. I, I mean, I think you. I mean, we've sort of been talking around it. The only real card there is for for them to play if they want to make a quote unquote big change would be to trade CJ McCollum. And from my understanding, Neil Olshay has just not had any interest whatsoever in even entertaining that. Yeah, and you've been talking about that for like a while when people were like. <laughs> You know they're gonna do like a, a CJ for Simmons swap. You were like, which nope. makes so much sense for both sides. It's like the most logical thing to like the Blazers yeah. maybe throw in a couple picks or whatever. Like, but that's the one. That's the trade, and I understand why people are talking about that one because just objectively, like from a logical standpoint, it just makes so much sense for both sides, and especially with like how low Simmons' value is. That's CJ's probably the best player that the Sixers are probably ever going to be able to get for his point. And he would he would make the, he would do so, does so much for the Blazers in terms of like what he would bring defensively and you know you you could run him at the five with some of those smaller lineups. Uh, it just would make so much sense on paper. I just don't think Neil Olshay really has any interest in trading CJ because he's kind of built his whole reputation on you know CJ was his discovery and Damon CJ he says are the best backcourt in the league and. I think I think just be I think a lot of it is just because you know people are saying oh they need to break them up they they can't play together I think that's kind of made him double down even more on I'm not going to trade CJ we can win with these two guys even though I mean pretty clearly there is a ceiling on it but I'm I'm with you I think that's what would need to happen for this team to really become a contender I just I, I I'm skeptical that Neil Shea would ever actually pull the trigger on something the only time that I can act, that I actually know that CJ was put on the table in a trade offer was that week at the beginning of last season when there was like the leak that Harden was like open to coming to Portland. I think, I think Neil did, you know, at that point say, Hey, you know, if this is a real possibility, then, you know, we can talk about this, but 
other than that, like, I don't think the Siakam thing that was reported over the summer was accurate from Portland's standpoint. I don't think that any other, you know, rumors or, you know, other, you know, things that CJ has reportedly been in, I don't think any of that has ever, there's ever been any interest in that from Portland's standpoint, whether you think there should be or not. Yeah, I mean, he's been pretty firm in his belief that they can play together, win together, and, like, they can clearly play together. They can clearly win a bunch of games together. I don't think anybody disputes that. I don't even think that the like the can they win in the playoffs together is out of the question. I think it's more that within the context of this specific roster, they don't have the pieces to, you know, um, to, to cover up for their weaknesses and amplify their strengths in the right ways and by enough to do it at the level that clearly Dame and everybody else wants to be able to do it. And and like you said, that does seem like the one card that they have to play if they wanted to make bigger changes. And obviously I would imagine they're going to give it longer than, you know, eight games that where Dame isn't shooting well to figure to figure out if this thing can work with the new coaching staff. It's just they've cycled through as many wings as you can possibly cycle through to try to figure out how it looks with Dame, CJ, and a center who can be sort of the connector in pick and rolls, but isn't necessarily a guy who can anchor a defense on his own. You know, they had Mason Plumley at first, and he was he was not you know as good of a you know a, of an individual offensive player as Nurkic is, but he did serve like a valuable role in the context of their offense, where you know they would want, run a pick and roll with him, and then if Dame got trapped, he could t- get the ball, move it to the other side, and then run a pick and roll with the other guy or make that pass to the corner or make the dump off to the other big man. Like that worked well for them. And it's worked similarly well with Nurkic. It's that when you cycled through again, as as many wings as they have with that combination, you either have to make a change at the guard or you have to get a different kind of center to where like, maybe it's a guy even more offense heavy. And it's a guy who's like the focal point of the offense. I don't know who that would be more more than, than Dame or Nurkic, but maybe it's that. Maybe it's someone who's more of a defensive guy, and then you could get other wing creators. I don't know what it is, but you, you got to do something different than this same configuration while swapping out the wings and the bench. The guy that I, that you know, I, a few people in, I guess, Blazers Twitter have talked about as somebody that would make sense to target as, in, in a trade, and I don't know what the trade would look like, but and a guy that, you know, I think is very talented and is another guy kind of like, and he wouldn't be for CJ, I don't think, because that's not like equal talent thing. But like, if they could somehow find a way to get Miles, it seems like it's fallen out of the rotation of Indy. That would be kind of a perfect thing. And they're they're playing the Pacers. I had that tomorrow. game, like that's the next Blazers game that I'm watching. They're playing them, what, tomorrow? I will be in the building. Yeah, I mean, Miles My- Turner has been, I feel like, a dream target for so many teams with like really good, offenses but their center is like fine and not good on defense it's like there, there were people right. talking about it with like the clippers or the mavericks <laughs> it's like it's it's so funny how every uh, there are so many other teams that dream on him but it's like i mean like you said i think there's been like four or five fourth quarters where he hasn't played for the pacers so far and he just had a, a huge game the other night against the knicks where he had like seven threes um but he's, you know, I'm looking at it now. He's at 27 minutes a game this year. That's down from 31 the year before. It's his fewest since he was a rookie. And granted, and him he, and Sabonis is kind of the is kind of the big the front court version of Dame and CJ, where it's like they're both great players, but it's like 
do they fit together? Can they play together? Like, like how, what's your ceiling with them long term? It's kind of, it's kind of like how you know Dame and CJ are are that for the two guards. Like, it's kind of you know Sabonis and Turner are kind of like that for the for two bigs. That's literally where I was going next. As soon as I finished the the whatever point it was that I don't even remember that I was going to make about Turner because because I got angry that you took my point for me. Um, <laughs> what so? Uh, but before we uh, switch over to some bowls, because I know you or a Chicago guy and a Bulls observer as well. I want to talk about Simons because I was kind of big on him. um, I guess it was two years ago when he was like playing well at the start of the season, but then his jumper kind of fell off for the rest of that year. And then last year he was basically only shooting well and not doing much else. And this year he's like absolutely on fire to start the season. And he, you know, he's still only 22, basically getting to, I think this is the last year of his rookie deal. Like what have you seen differently from him that has enabled him to take on a larger role? Or is it just like they decided to put him in a large role and now he's playing better? This was one of the things that I think the front office and the previous coaching staff disagreed on because you know, Anthony Simons is a guy that Neil Olshay drafted and has been, you know, really high on his potential. And obviously he's incredibly talented. And I think he never really earned Terry Stotts' trust and he never got the kind of minutes that I think maybe the organization was hoping that he would get. And he's a guy that so far, yeah, they put him in a bigger role. They've, uh, you know, they, they, they brought in a bunch of, you know, I think they kind of wanted him to be the backup uh, point guard. But then, you know, remember in training camp, they brought in like, Dennis Smith Jr., who ended up making the team, and Quinn Cook and a couple of other, like, veteran, you know, name point guards, you know, to try to push him in training camp. And from the sound of it, he beat them all, all those guys out for the backup point guard spot. And, I mean, it's, the shooting has been obviously still there, but, you know, I think he's improved as a playmaker. And, you know, just like with Dame, I don't think it's a good defender, but the effort has been there on that end, like, to the point where he's not, like, a complete liability. Like, he's actually trying on that end. And so... You've just, you've just kind of seen him grow into that role. And that's going to be very interesting to see what happens with him this offseason. Because like you said, this is the last year of his rookie deal. They didn't do an extension because they decided they needed to see a little bit more coming on a consistent basis. But they already paid Norman Powell $90 million. So now you're paying mm-hmm. Dane, CJ, Norm. And then if you're going to pay Anthony Simons, I don't know what the number would be that he would get on the open market. But if he keeps playing like this, it's probably going to be you know 15 a year at least. Are you going to pay for, you know, again, I know that, that some people say this is a false narrative, but that they're small guards, but are you going to be paying for small guards that much money or is something going to have to give at that point? And we, we know what Neil's aversion to moving CJ is like, it, it, it's, it's a whole lot. It's going to put everybody in kind of an agent spot. Yeah. And look, it's, it's not just those guys that have their contracts up, by the way, it's like basically just, yeah, no, like it's Dame, CJ, and Powell are, I think, like the only guys under contract beyond Pretty next much, year. Yeah. Um, I think Nance um, has a... No, no, that's what I said, beyond next year. Um, like Nance has another year, and then I'm looking at... Um, yeah, Little has the, the team option for next year, but everybody Covington's else, Covington, this, right? uh, Covington's this year, Nurkic is this year, Simons, Zeller, Tony Snell, Ben McLemore, Dennis Smith, everybody on the team except for, you know, the three guards and then Larry Nance and Little's team option. And then I guess if you want to count uh, Greg Brown as well, but right. is, is he on a two-way or no, he no, was the second round pick. Second round pick. Yeah. But you know, it's this off season, I think is going to be pretty clearly, and they've set it up this way 
a big inflection point for them. Like it, it almost has to be. What's hilarious or what's interesting is they've been playing some, I don't have a lineup data in front of me, but they've been playing some four guard lineups recently where they've been playing Dame, CJ, Powell, Simon, and then Nurkic as the, as the big. And last night after the Cleveland game, Chauncey was asked about it and he was like, well, we're not stopping anybody anyway, which, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, I thought it wasn't the whole point of bringing him in to be, you know, the defensive coach and install a new defensive mentality him. Eight games into the season, we're talking about playing a four-guard lineup because we're not stopping anybody anyway, so that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, all right, but before we switch over to Bulls, we had a question earlier from Zach California. Do you think the Warriors can win the finals this year? Where do you stand on that? How healthy and effective is Clay Thompson? In this yeah, year? that's basically the entire question. Like, if Clay Thompson is the Clay Thompson that he was before he tore his ACL and Achilles, sure, why not? Like, it seems pretty wide open right now. But if he's not, and, you know, most guys that we see, like, Kevin Durant is the exception when, when it comes to coming back from tearing an Achilles. Basically, nobody else has been good anymore when they've done that. And then you add in an ACL on top of it. Like, I did the the, the intro post for 538 this year for the projections. Uh-huh. And one of, the, one of the, the biggest controversies was that it didn't have the Warriors being very good. It had them missing not just the playoffs, but the play-in. And it's basically because it can't, like, the projection system counts Clay as a negative now because that's how heavily it penalizes both Achilles tears and multiple multi uh, multiple season-ending injuries. And it's like, granted, that's not the end-all, be-all, obviously, but I, I don't know that we can expect Clay to just like be Clay again, you know? Well, if it was just the ACL, I wouldn't have been worried about it at all because we've seen, we're seeing more and more of the science with the ACL tears has evolved to the point where a guy like Zach Levine has come back from an ACL and been fine and actually been better than ever. And I have no doubt that when Jamal Murray comes back at some point this season, he's going to be fine too. Like ACL has become like not, it's not like it was a number of years ago where like Derek Rose has it and he's just never the same guy again. So, and especially for a guy like Clay, where his game is not really reliant on explosiveness and he's just kind of a guy that runs around and stands in the corner and spots up. Like I wasn't going to be worried about him if it was just the ACL, but then it's the ACL and an Achilles and now he hasn't played in two years. My whole thing with the Warriors is that, you know, maybe you do get Clay back and maybe eventually Clay looks the same. But I don't think you can expect Clay to look the same this year. I think the hope with that, with that, with for the Warriors is you try it out. I'm sure obviously their mentality is we're trying to win a championship. But if I were like trying to set reasonable expectations for the Warriors, I think you hope that Clay comes back mid season and then you spend this season and then whatever of the playoffs you end up doing getting him reacclimated and getting him comfortable and getting him back up to speed. And then the hope being that next year you go into training camp with everybody fully healthy and try to make one more run with this core, you know, the Steph Clay dream on Iguodala. He's back. That group, you try to do that, you know, from, you know, from, from jump next year. That's kind of the way I would be looking at. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Although I, I, I I think it was Mike Prada on Twitter yesterday who made a point about Jordan Poole and how, you know, it's obviously not to the same level, but how he could maybe sort of extend their window a bit in the same way that Kawhi did for the Duncan Parker Ginobili Spurs, just because of the leap that he's made over the last year or so. And I thought that was a really interesting way to look at it. Like maybe their window's not just open this year or next year. And maybe it extends a year or two beyond that. Who knows? Like Steph clearly is still playing at an extremely high level. Draymond is on defense. And as a passer, obviously he's devolved into basically a completely non-threat um, as a scorer, but if there's anybody that can make that work, it's him. Um, 
you know, you, you mentioned uh, Levine has come back from from the ACL tear and been better than ever. Like I've done such a 180 on him over the last like year plus. It's it's pretty outrageous what he's been able to do as an offensive player. Like I'm just so sold on him as like a top, you know, two guy on a on a team as a scorer. Like and it, his his defense is not still not great, but it's so much better than it was when he was in Minnesota and it's like you forget when a because guys come into the league and play such big roles so young now like this is Levine's eighth season in the league and he's 26 still like it's it's crazy how much development there's been and how good he is already and how young he still is at this time yeah and it's it's kind of funny that you know the perception of him I kind of I've kind of called the, the you know the Devin Booker uh 180 because remember Devin Booker before you know the Suns got good the last couple of years was kind of viewed as like wow he's you know he's he's really talented and he's a great scorer but a lot of it is just sort of him putting up big numbers on a bad team and I think you know before last year's playoff run Trey Young was kind of viewed the same way by some people and there are some times where it goes one way and you know for example a guy like D'Angelo Russell where you know that's just kind of what he is and it's clearly like he's not a guy that's gonna you know be the one or two that, you know, option on a, on a winning team and that's just kind of what it is but then there are guys like Devin Booker in the bubble and then in the playoffs in the finals run last year and Trey Young last year in the playoffs where once the team gets good and the team is in games that matter he actually still is that good and I think what we're seeing from Zach Levine this I mean obviously last year he was an all-star but then this year like the team is actually trying to be good and they are good so far and he's still doing what he's doing. And I think it's pretty encouraging to see. And it's like, okay, maybe this is for real. Maybe this guy actually is a winning player instead of just a guy that scores a lot. Yeah, and uh, the, the way they're moving the ball, I think, is is really good because they had a bunch of guys that are really good individual offensive players in, in Zach and DeRozan and Vucevic. And, and Lonzo is not necessarily an individual offensive player, but I, I do think like him being on – the team as like a connector and another shooter and a guy who's just gonna like, we've seen it everywhere he's gone where he's on the team. Like guys make extra passes when he's in games. And I think that everybody I'm looking at, like they've got five guys over three and a half assists a game four over four assists a game. Like that's, I don't think that's an accident. They're moving the ball well. And because they are, they're putting each other in position to succeed. And like Vooch is not even playing very well yet you know, or, or at least on offense there and their defense has been like surprisingly good. Some of that was a, a soft early season schedule, but it's even been good as the schedule has gotten harder over the last few games, you know, like they lost a game to the Knicks where they came back and it was, you know, whatever the DeMar had the, the missed shot at the buzzer over RJ Barrett. And then they, they lost a pretty terrible game the other night to the Sixers, um, which should not have been a lot. Like that's a really bad loss. They had everybody out basically. Um, but I mean, what, what have you thought about just the, not necessarily the, the results, but just the way they're playing offense so far? Well, I think the DeRozan thing has also been huge on a couple of levels. First, you know, you were talking about how many guys are over to however many assists and, you know, the, the, the playmaking, I, th- I think, I think for a lot of things, they still view DeRozan the way that he mm-hmm. was kind of viewed in Toronto as just sort of like a volume shooter who doesn't really do that much else. The last few years when he got, like, since he got to San Antonio, he's improved so much as a playmaker. And I think, you know, that's been, that's been a big uh, 
thing that he's you know been able to carry over so far in Chicago. And the other thing I I I, I thought this over the summer when they about when they brought him in and there was some you know some people who were kind of skeptical of the move or how much money they paid him or whatever. Last year, like towards the end of the season, the Bulls were still in the mix to be in the play-in. And they were just kind of hanging in and kind of the low end of like the actually competitive teams in the East. And then Zach Levine gets COVID and it's just a complete wrap for them for, for the season. They're just, they're just out of it because they have nobody else who can create their own shot or who can really, you know, go get a bucket at the end of the game or, you know, to, to use the cliche. And now like Zach right now is dealing with this thumb injury and, you know, both he and Billy Donovan have like admitted outright that he isn't himself right now. And they just they have another guy now who you can give the ball to at the end of the game and say, go get us a bucket. And he and DeRozan can do that. Yeah, I mean, look, DeMar averaged 3.1 assists a game in Toronto. Obviously, that number went up over like his mid-career prime when he started making all-star games and whatnot. But he was at 6.2 during his three years in San Antonio. Like, And he was legit like their primary playmaker last year. Not like He basically split co-lead ball handling duties with DeJounte Murray. Like Derek White was out for a lot of the season. So it was basically those two guys running the offense in both the half court and the full court. He still gets to the line a crazy amount. He's one of the best guys in the league at drawing fouls. He's been the last few years like well over 50% on two point shots. So even though he doesn't take threes, he's one of the few guys that is efficient while taking all twos because he gets to the line so much and because he's such a good two point shooter. And it's just like when you have that guy around like three plus shooters from three in Lonzo, Vooch, um, and why am I forgetting the third? And Levine, obviously. Um, and then, you know, you have a guy who can go on the block in Vucevic, and you have guys that can come in and create off the dribble a little bit. Like Caruso is not a nothing offensively. Like it's just such a well rounded group offensively. Like, it's not super deep because I think once you get into like the Javante greens and the Derek Joneses and even like the Troy Browns, like there's not much creation ability there. So if they lose one of their top perimeter guys, it's going to be a lot tougher for them, especially like if they lose Lonzo, it's not as tough because he doesn't have as much creation responsibility in the half court, but Zach not being himself or going out or DeMar going out like that could be a big problem. But when they're all healthy, like man, it's it's really fun to watch them on offense. Well, right, but that's also I, like I just said. That's why I think bringing in DeRozan was so important because, like you know, last year they lose Zach because of COVID, and they they it, they just have nobody. If you lose, it's kind of um, on a much lower level. It's kind of like you know one thing about the Nets bringing in James Harden was it's insurance for if something were to happen to Kyrie Irving because now you still have a second guy who's besides Durant who can you know create their own thing. It's sort of obviously not the same level of player as, as those guys, but you have kind of, you know, you bring in DeRozan, not just to play with Levine, but as insurance, like they can be insurance for each other, where if one of them goes out, then you still have one guy who's like that, you know, go-to scorer, like shot, you know, creator, that, like, like that type of guy. I mean, I'm really interested long-term during a season to, to, you know, to see how they end up mitigating losing Patrick Williams for the season, which sucks a lot, not just because, you know, he's an exciting young player that the fan base was excited about, but, is out for the season now with his wrist injury, but also he was going to be pretty important to what they were doing. I know that defensively they had a lot tied up in his development. So it's like, is Derek Jones Jr. going to be able to soak up a lot of those minutes? And is he going to be able to, 
make an impact. Like I'm interested to see how they resolve that. Maybe that you know prompts them to go do something at the trade deadline and get someone else to bring in there to plug that hole. Or maybe they're in the market for one of these buyout guys mid-season. I don't know who that is, but that's kind of the one question about them right now. Yeah, right now they're kind of splitting those minutes, it seems like, between Jones and Javante Green and Alizé Johnson. And it's it's interesting, the splitting the job between three guys. Like, obviously none of them is the same kind of player that he is and is not as important to their future as he is. It's, it's really a bummer that he went down. I know I joke a lot uh, about Florida State guys because it's the worst school in the country. But <laughs> the dude is is a really interesting and really fun player. And I think he was playing well. Even with you know his his small offensive role, like he was such an important piece for what they were going to be doing this year, especially because they're building their defense basically around like perimeter guys, and then just Vooch being huge. You know, it's like Williams, Lonzo, Caruso, and then Vooch is enormous, and that was probably going to be the defense. And to lose one of the the three guys that was probably going to be a pillar there is it's a real bummer. And like I, I don't I don't know how much more to say about it. Like I he's going to be out for the whole year like it's and with your wrist was it his left wrist or his right wrist i don't know off the top of my head but yeah i mean if it's his right wrist obviously that would be even worse um granted it's oh it's his left wrist um but that's still not so great not not a shooting hand but it's still not what you want right and um you know like it just kind of sucks like especially because they're playing so well early on and he was obviously going to be really important to their fortunes like uh to, to go back to DeRozan real quickly I think for me my issue with it wasn't like didn't care how much they paid him didn't care necessarily about the fit like I thought it would be fine for what they needed my thing was like don't give up the first round pick and if you can keep Thad Young do it because he would be both your backup center and probably the guy that you would want closing at the four and I think with Williams going down losing Thad hurts even more um but I don't know how else you would have been able to make the deal Without that, you needed the salary to pay well, DeRozan unless, that much. Unless Lowry Markkinen was going to do the, be involved in the signing trade, which was something they talked about at every. All right, but once uh, were interested in him at the number that he wanted at that. Right, and then the, they wound up signing like Doug McDermott and Zach Collins. It would basically like we're going to get like two shots at trying to find a Lowry Markkinen. Right. Yeah. And when Markkinen, I when I, I mean, what do you think? I'm you know, to, to sort of change the subject here. I, one of my favorite. Teams. I mean, I know Markkinen is now in the COVID protocol, so you know he has he's not he didn't play last night. He's probably not going to play for a little bit. But uh, I've been so fascinated by the Cavs starting the jumbo with him and Mobley and Jared Allen, and it's the kind of thing where you look at that on paper and you're like, no way is that going to work. But they had a positive net rating in, in, with those three on the court until he just went down. Yeah, I mean, I'm mostly just flabbergasted that it was working for a while. Um, I think after the last game, they are now negative on the season, if okay. I'm remembering correctly. But it was working, like, real well early in the year. And, um, like, it's surprising. Like, you just shouldn't be able to get away with something like that. It doesn't really make sense. Like, Markkinen can't really guard wings for the most part. Just Mobley on defense the mobility that that dude has is just outrageous for a guy who's seven feet tall it kind of makes no sense um like you shouldn't be able to move that way you know but he can and that's i think was the reason like that combined with Allen is such a good rim protector that you can make something that shouldn't be able to work passable 
because you have two guys with special skill sets. Yeah, and yeah, Mo, Mobley's been awesome. He's definitely, I mean, he's obviously rookie of the year so far, I, I think. But yeah, he's awesome. You know, he's been kind of go ahead. Season is, is you know on the subject of like this Cavs team and some other teams. I feel like we're starting to see, and you know, you tell me kind of what you think of this because you know you look at this, these kinds of things a little bit more analytically than I do. But uh, I feel like there's a little bit more of a variety this year in the ways that different teams play. I feel like we're kind of, this is just me anecdotally, and it's just as somebody that watches games, I haven't like dug into numbers on this the way that you have probably, but I feel like we're coming off of like five or six years where everybody is trying to play like the Warriors and just jacking up a bunch of threes, and that's just kind of how everybody's trying to play, even if they don't have the personnel. Whereas I feel like this year, you have a team like the Cavs where they're trying to play three bigs together, and people think it's going to be a disaster like that one year the Pistons were trying to play like Josh Smith and Andre Drummond and Greg Monroe together. And, but it's actually, and I don't know if I would like it if every team played like that, but I like that there's one team that's trying that and it's kind of working. You look at a team like Toronto where they don't really have a lot of shot creation or a lot of like high caliber offense, but they're like kind of a 90 throwback where they completely smother you on defense and make everything difficult for you. And I like that there's one team that like does that and that's kind of their identity. I feel like a lot of different teams like, you, you look at around the league, it feels like not everybody is trying to play the same way and every teams are kind of trying different stuff and doing different stuff. And it's made the games a lot more enjoyable for me to watch. I'd be interested in your thoughts on that as somebody who, you know, like I said, probably like looks a little bit more into like the, that stuff analytically than maybe I do. Yeah, I think that there was a little bit more stylistic diversity over the last few years than people tend to think there was, especially um over the last two years where I wrote about this a couple off seasons ago, where basically the, the share of lineups with two bigs in them had been dramatically declining since basically the beginning of, you know, the big three era in Miami with, you know, LeBron Wade, Bosch, once Bosch started playing center for those guys, the share of two big lineups in the league, like fell off a cliff and the warriors with their success with Draymond at center at center sort of accelerated that, that uh, decline. And then all of a sudden, two off seasons ago, we saw a bunch of teams go in on two bigs. The Lakers brought in Davis and a bunch of centers. The The Sixers signed Al Horford to play with Joel Embiid. The, the Celtics, uh, not the Celtics. Um, who was it? The, 13, um, the, the, the Hawks had just traded for Clint Capella. Um, was there was another team that I used as an example, but it was like basically there was a bunch of teams going more to two big stuff. The Knicks basically play two bigs at pretty much all times at this point. Like so, the the lineup diversity I think has been there a little bit more than people have admitted over the last couple of years. The interesting thing is like you look at the difference between the cat like the Cavs are playing three huge guys. And it was, you know, was working somewhat for them. The Raptors are basically playing no big guys. Everybody on their team, except for Fred Van Vliet, is between like six five and six nine. You know, right. it's it's like everybody on the court is basically the same player. So you have like the opposite ends of the spectrum there. But then you have a team like look at the Hornets. You know, their their whole starting lineup is like six nine, except for Terry Rozier, um, and, and they can play a lot of different ways, even when they bring guys off the bench and then you go to a team like I'm tr- like the, the Knicks are not just a big team at the front court positions, but they're, you know, Barrett is a big wing. Fournier is like six, five, six, six. They come off the bench and they have Noel and Gibson and, and Obi Toppin. Like last year they were a little bit bigger on the perimeter when they had like Reggie Bullock and 
uh, Alfred Payton, but the the lineup diversity and how that plays into teams want to play. Like you mentioned, the Raptors pressing like so far out on the court with their defense, like that makes sense for them because they have those crazy athletes. Like when you have OG and Scotty Barnes and Van Vliet and Gary Trent and Achua and Boucher and the like, they'll get Siakam back at some point. Like you can do that. I, like I don't think they're able to be as shape shifty defensively as they were a couple of years ago when, when Krishna and I wrote that story about their uh, like the shape shifting of their defense and they're moving through like zones and all different kinds of coverages. Like, I don't know if they're set up to do that anymore because they don't have Lowry and they don't have Danny green and they don't have, you know, Mark and Serge to patrol things on the back end, but they can just go around trying to like make stuff happen, like create havoc. And I think you're seeing a similar thing from the wolves on defense. They're just like trying to pressure and force turnovers everywhere basically because they're probably not going to be able to play super solid defense to begin with just because they're such a young team so you might as well try to ramp up the pressure and use your athleticism you know and then you look at the opposite end of the spectrum you know not to just bring it back to the knicks but their defense is you know much more conservative and they're not trying to force turnovers they're trying to force bad shots and then you have a team that'll like force you to the rim and be like go ahead and try to deal with rudy gobert like the jazz you know it's it is interesting that i think more teams are willing to play to the style that their players that the players on their roster suggest than this is the style we want to play because this is how the coach thinks we should play there are fewer teams like that right now i think that's i think a better stated version of the point that i had sort of been trying to make i feel like a lot more teams are willing to just play the way that you know they're set up to play as opposed to teams have all these different kinds of personnel, but they're trying to still play like the Warriors, even though they don't have the Warriors personnel. Right. Uh, yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, wh- what else has stood out to you so far? We got like 15 or so minutes left here. And uh, if anybody has any questions for us, by the way, put them in the chat and we'll try to get to them after we talk about, you know, just interesting things that have stood out for these last 10, 15 minutes or so. Is it a cliche to say Memphis? Because I just, God, is incredible. And I love that team and, my, I think my hottest take going into the season is it would surprise me but not completely shock me if the Grizzlies were this year's Hawks and made the conference finals out of nowhere. That is definitely a hot take. Um, like, it's I don't a hot know that take, I... but you also think about it and you're you know what, I could, you know, it's within the realm of possibility. That, like, it's also, it's a take like Taylor made for me because I love so many guys on the Grizzlies. Well, and right, I love like, like this. It's, it's kind of the, the reason I sort of compare it to the Hawks is because going into last season, the thought with the Hawks was, oh, you know, they have one guy that, you know, we, people think is going to be a huge star. And then they have a lot of young guys that people like, but, you know, a lot of unproven guys, you know, hopefully this is the year they you know, really make the playoff and maybe take a step forward. And then a bunch of stuff goes their way and they make the coaching change and whatever, and they end up making the conference finals and nobody kind of expected that. And now they're sort of ahead of schedule. I kind of feel like with the leap that Jaw is made, they are very deep. They're very well coached. The Steven Adams acquisition, I think, has been working better than a lot of people thought it would be, I think, because they're, you know people were kind of down on him compared to Valanciunas, so people didn't understand really that trade, but he's been good for them so far. I would not, I mean, like I said, I would not predict it. I would not be, you know, I would be surprised, but I wouldn't be, like, completely blown away if they have some sort of run like that where everything just goes their way in the playoffs and they and they make it to you know to that to that level to the, or to that stage. Yeah, I mean I think I would be somewhere between surprised and shocked. Like it's hard to replicate um the 
COVID and injury circumstances of last year's playoffs. Right. Um, and it's such a deep conference that you got to avoid the play-in too, most likely, because if you wind up playing one of those top teams, like it's just, it's so tough. Um, but like, for, it's not just job for me. Like I love the way that Desmond Bain and DeAnthony Melton are playing. Like they don't even have Dylan Brooks back yet and who took like a big step forward last season for me as both a guy who was A, willing to pass the ball more than twice a game and B, play some defense. Like, too, yeah. yeah, he was the mo- probably the most improved defender in the league last year. Um, him or like Julius Randle, probably. It was pretty outrageous. Um, questions here. First from Justin, any rookies who have really surprised you so far? Um, the one for me is just like how integral guys like Chris Duarte and Franz Wagner have been to their team's offenses like right away. Like Duarte's come in and he's been like, I think he takes the second most shots on the team right now. And then Wagner has just had a bunch of games already where he scored like 20 plus points and hit like four threes or whatever. He didn't score that much in college. And he just like, what What about you? What do you think so far? Any, any rookies? Duarte was going to be the one that I was going to say, not just because I'm a fellow graduate uh, University of Oregon, but he's a guy, I mean, and that, and, you know, he's a guy like obviously with Franz Wagner, like he's putting up big numbers, but, you know, everyone knows the Magic are going to be terrible. They're not really, you know, you know, a guy, a guy, a rookie by putting up big numbers on a team that is everyone knows is going to be bad. Like that doesn't, that's, you know, I'm not trying to like, you know, disparage it or anything, but that doesn't stand out to me as much because there are those guys every year. But the Pacers are a team that theoretically, like the record's not there right now, but theoretically it's trying to be good. And also a coach in Rick Carlisle that famously over his career doesn't really trust rookies and doesn't really trust young guys and is giving Duarte this much of a responsibility. Some of it's out of necessity because they still don't have TJ Warren back, but like it. And they didn't have, uh, they didn't have Levert to start the season either. Right. Right. But so some of it was out of necessity, but the fact that, you know, now, even though, you know, Levert is, you know, coming back and, you know, Warren, I think theoretically is supposed to be back soon. Duarte has played well enough that I think he's earned staying in the rotation and he's, you know, he's earned minutes. Yeah, for sure. And and, and I got to shout out Scotty Barnes too. Um, oh yeah, I know. Well, I it's bring a... him up because that's like that's like not even really like it's almost like cliche to talk about it because that's like everybody's talking about him. But yeah, he's been. Yeah, I mean, he's a the number four pick, but I mean, he did go to Florida State, so there was probably a pretty good chance that he was going to be terrible. Um, and then just <laughs> Davion Mitchell's defense is ad- yeah. as advertised so far. Um, Shangun for Houston is just like. I don't know necessarily that he's 100% sure what he's doing out there sometimes, but he's super productive. I think he's going to wind up being a really good player. And by the way, for for Indiana, um, Isaiah Jackson was playing early in the season too. Like He got hurt in uh, one of their games, uh, I think it was against the Knicks early in the season. So he was like their backup center early on, and now sort of Batadze back in that role. So playing two rookies, Rick Carlisle, good for you, man. Um, Sire Williams was playing early for... Memphis not playing very well. Um, I, I do think he's an interesting player, though. Like, uh, so it's sort of talking around. Not not all guys that we're surprised by, but just guys. You know who's going back to the Bulls for a second. You know who has been interesting is Io. I, I don't know how to say his last name. Jasunu. You know, I'm t- you know what I'm talking about though. He's had a couple of big moments for, and you know he was like he was a guy that like he was a second round pick and. He's a Chicago guy, and people mm-hmm. were, you know, there were people locally who were kind of annoyed by the pick because he's not like a high yeah. upside guy, and because it seemed like it was kind of a Garpax pick where they were making like a low, taking a local guy 
even though those two aren't being you know, the, the the in the front office anymore, that's still like that. They they kind of felt people a lot of Bulls fans that I follow kind of felt like that pick was sort of in that spirit. But he's been good. He's been actually earning minutes in the rotation. He's been he's hit a couple of big shots. He's he's been good. Yeah, he's come off the bench for some nice minutes. He doesn't like get. He's not a guy who's guaranteed multiple stints every game. Like sometimes no. rookies will get the one stint and that's it. But he's been interesting a couple times and he's been out there. He's he seems like he's like super strong, which is, you know, an interesting thing for them to have because I think it's something that they need. Like, he's a, a well-built dude. Um, a couple of people in the chat mentioning Josh Giddy. Uh, yeah, like, give me a big point guard, and I'm basically all in before he even does anything in the NBA. So I'm, I'm pretty in on Josh Giddy. Um, somebody else asked earlier, I can't remember who it was because I have to scroll up, but what, what are the top five soups that you wouldn't mind having thrown at you? Um, <laughs> I'll just say for me, I would mind having every single soup. Thrown yeah, at me. There, there are I, no I, soups, no soups for me. Yeah, not like not soup really, Nazi yeah. style, but I, I do not, guy. I'm not a soup guy. A soup typically is super hot. I don't want like a hot thing getting spilled on me. And uh, I know this is a J.R. Smith joke, so instead I will shout out J.R. Smith, shout out Monmouth County, shout out J.R. going to get his degree and playing college golf, and shout out J.R. for... His tweets about his college experience have been so delightful. Incredible. Um, and shout out to him for the first time that I covered a game in person, taking me to the side after the scrum and being like, hey man, I'll answer your questions because I you didn't get one in. That was great. Uh, I was super appreciative of that. Um, And he was great to talk to just about like super nerdy stuff, like what he does when Carmelo is running a pick and roll. Like there's, there's a perception of Jr. as a certain kind of guy because of the way he is. But he, if you would just want to talk about basketball to him, he'll talk like for a while. He's a good dude. Mm. Um, And again, like I said, Monmouth County. Um, Yeah. So, uh, that's all I got for you, man. What do you What do you got uh, com- coming out on Bleacher Report in the next, you know, however long? What uh, What games are you going to? What do you got on tap? Well, the Blazers have a double home back to back tomorrow and Saturday. They've got the Pacers tomorrow, so I'm going to get to see Chris, the Chris Duarte experience in person, which I'm pretty excited about. And then yeah. they've got the Lakers on Saturday, which is kind of a bummer that. LeBron isn't going to play because you only get one. Oh yeah, let's uh, let's talk about that briefly too. That's yeah, it's, it sucks. Uh, like so, I I posted this earlier. The last few years, so before through his first, I'm not counting how many seasons through his age 33 season, he played at least 90 percent of the games every year except for one, which was that year in Cleveland where he basically like took a hiatus in the middle of the season to, make to get them trade. Yeah, right, like to get them to make trades. Other than that, he played at least 90% of the games every year. Since he turned 34, which is basically the years he's been in L.A., he's only played 90% once. Um, 67% in 18-19, 94% in the year that was interrupted by COVID, and then he came back for the bubble. 62.5% last year. Right now he's played 6 of 8, and he's out for at least the next week. Who knows how much longer. Um, he's 37 now. I think we all still think of LeBron as being indestructible, and for the most part, he is. And like, I wouldn't say I'm worried yet, but my radar is up a little bit, certainly more than it ever has been before. My thing with the Lakers the whole time this year has been 
as long as him and AD are healthy, they're going to be title contenders. But the as long as him and AD, I mean, obviously AD has kind of always had injury concerns. But with LeBron, it's become more of a thing the last couple of years. And I just, you know, he's getting older and he's still, he's looked incredible when he has played. But you have to now, it used to be that, that you just assume he's never going to miss any games and just kind of take it for granted. But over the last couple of years, uh, it's, you know, that's not, it's not as much of a thing you can count on anymore. And I think it's interesting too, that it's like, it's come in a season where he's taking so many more threes and not going to the basket nearly as much as he has for the significant majority of his career. Like, I just want him to be on the court. Yeah. I mean, I just, I want him to be on the court as often as possible. Like we're only going to have so many more chances to watch this guy. And, uh, it, it sucks to miss out on them, especially in person, which is like a completely ridiculous experience when you get to experience yeah. it. Like, yeah, but the Car- Carmelo homecoming still be pretty fun. Oh yeah, dude, Carmelo is like unconscious right now. He's yeah. making like over fifty percent of his threes, which is crazy. But uh, Sean, thank you for doing this, man. Really appreciate you. You can find him on Bleacher Report. You can find him at Hiken on Twitter. H i g h k i n uh sean thanks so much man appreciate you always good talk to you buddy have a good one we'll be back uh next tuesday same time five to six and then uh tuesdays and thursdays for uh the foreseeable future same time thanks for coming on send uh any questions i will let you know who the guest is going to be for next tuesday hopefully in advance uh thanks for thanks for listening appreciate you